place for us to jump off. Uh, today, it'll just be Chris and I. Uh, we'll probably get back to guests in short order, but we figured we might as well share some of what we've learned and what we've been through over the last year uh, just in the market. Um, Chris, I'm hoping to dive into your return for last year a little bit uh, to the degree that you're happy to talk about it. Um, and, you know, your overall return and, you know, what's continued to work for you and actually even talk a little bit about how you've, your process for success worked through, you know, uh, four tragedies. I mean, two real ones and then two, well, one of them not so real. Well, what you've got to tell me, which tragedies are you referring to? The, the, your parents. Oh, the passing of my parents. Yeah. Well, and then well, you being a, uh, you being uh, on a trial for a foreman for a murder trial, right? Yeah, that took a while. That was uh, two months, of course, of time. And then, of course, having to provide way too much information to a government entity to show your compliance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a natural part of living, I think, in this world. So I, I was just saying there were four things that happened to you. You still happen to kill it, I think, in the market last year with, what, 9%, Richard? Yeah, 9.6 overall. You know, we manage a few different portfolios um, as a registered investment advisory firm. We do have clients with varying needs. But in terms of the growth uh, portfolio that we manage, um, it especially turned around for us in the fourth quarter. We have been anticipating a return to values in hard assets, a return of investment flows, I guess I should say. Um, and we looked at a lot of the hot dots, the especially technology sector, which had been overvalued for quite a while, um, start to come down. And what was really great, especially about that October and November period, was we saw a reassertion of some of the positions we had coming back into, um, into alignment with their historical relationship to the market. And in particular, I mean, precious metals, commodities, and hard assets um, did well when the market started to falter. And by the market, I mean the index. So um, that was really a, a big help at the year end. It gave us a great push higher. Um, so, so take me through the year, actually, right? Um, take me when, when you're taking me through the year, the best you can, you know, from January, when I think you were in the trial all the way through, was it October when your mom passed? September? Yeah. So in the early part of the year, Neil, there was a, a great surge. Really, it was a follow-on from 2017. In wait, early wait, 2018, emerging wait, market stocks. Wait, um, wait, wait. Inside here, what I'm also, as much as anything else, hoping to learn about is the process of how, like, when I meet you today, you're happier than you've ever been. And you attributed, you know, meditating extra to that. Um, but even your family was happier. Um, and I know you're close to your parents, and I know just last year must have been maybe one of the hardest years of all of life for a person. So, you know, while I'm saying take me through the market, and I'm also saying take me through your process through the year and the best you can of how you're feeling, if that's okay, if that's not prying too much. Oh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. So I, um, well, every day I have a little communion with my parents and loved ones. 
And that's uh, 5 a.m. I do a daily meditation practice. I um, often meditate two times a day, uh, once in the morning and once before I either leave the office or, or go to bed. And that really helps uh, keep everything in perspective. You know, Mark Twain once said, um, dying doesn't bother me in the least. I was dead for billions and billions of years before <laughs> I was alive and I wasn't slightly inconvenienced. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do think, though, in a very real sense, um, we are all a continuation of our parents, our ancestors, um, of all the stardust that makes us up. And in a very real way, we're just so lucky to be alive. And I feel um, in that same way that I can um, communicate um, further um, my relationship, even with my parents that are deceased, um, by just taking time, pausing, and breathing for them. And I, um, I really feel it, and I can feel their presence in me. Um, I am their continuation. Uh, and that goes way, way, way back, many, many generations. But of course, most presently, the gift my parents have given me, um, what they've transmitted to me, the, this life itself, but also um, what skills I have in many ways, my ability to think. Um, those are, are wonderful gifts that I've been given, my education itself. So I um, regularly take that time to thank them and practice that gratitude in meditation. That starts the day beautifully um, and in peace. And that's a, a very real part of the process. I, um, so I, last year, um, we also, of course, as a firm and in, in my own habit, are constantly, as all investors should, look for things we feel are undervalued. That can mean um, you know, you might think growth uh, is undervalued, but generally speaking, uh, we're kind of nuts and bolts investors looking at uh, concrete results. The, the world is funny now. I mean, the, there are probably, I don't know, five different measures of net income now that people use in varying forms or fashion. Uh, non-GAAP, adjusted EBITDA, etc. All these things are meant, of course, to flatter results. So it's important for us to really look through those and see what's actually happening in the economy. We're seeing it now. I mean, with uh, semiconductors are always a great uh, bellwether in the market. They're like the canary in the coal mine. Um, semiconductors or chips are in everything. And so watching carefully the inventories of chip makers uh, always gives us a sign. Is there a bottleneck at, you know, in the in in output? Is there a bottleneck in the uptake? Um, companies that use chips, of course, are everywhere. They're the raw material of our modern society. Um, they're in everything from, of course, automobiles, um, smartphones, the first and largest end market. Um, automobiles are probably second, but now even apparel and everything is <laughs> getting chipped. So I think uh, it's kind of like the old days when people called copper Dr. Copper. 
if we really pay attention to what's happening among a lot of the chip companies and even the the um, equipment makers like LAM Research or Applied Materials, you can start to get a sense of where the economy is going. But in any event, we thought um, in late 2016 that there was a slowdown coming that really um, didn't happen. So we've had our own forecasting errors, but it did ultimately come to fruition and it hit rather strongly in the third quarter of last year. So we, in some ways, were about a year and a half early. Um, but going through the year, we had a good year in 2017, especially because we had invested uh, more of our portfolio in some emerging market economies, notably Brazil and Russia. Um, and again, this is part of an idea we had had that um, commodity producers um, like Brazil and Russia as a broad example, uh, commodity-based companies, oil and energy and precious metals and mining companies had sort of been abandoned by the larger market. And the investment flows were going primarily into technology, but really that was a function of index investing and passive investing. The um, technology sector, if we include Amazon as a tech company, which is a subject of some debate, um, grew to be 29% of the S&P 500 index. And that kind of uh, overexpression um, in terms of market value is something that's always corrected and sometimes rather violently or abruptly. So we had kind of anticipated this. I mean, the, the S&P index uh, technology component in the year 2000 during the dot-com era grew to be about 26% of that index value. Um, and again, at that time, tech profits, technology earnings were only about 11% of total GDP uh, in the economy. And today it's not that much different. About 13% of uh, profits can be traced to what are so-called tech companies. And again, I say so-called only because there's a fuzzy definition of what constitutes tech, but most people do include Amazon, which is a retailer in my mind. I guess I probably mix. include Amazon because it seems to me the bulk of their salary goes to software engineers. Yeah, I would say that, you know. Or at um, least the big AWS salaries I hear about are, are provided to software engineers. That's why I think about them as a tech company, even though I really think about yeah. them more in the logistics business. Yeah, and certainly as a percentage of profit, though it's very hard to figure out um, the annual reports and the reporting from Amazon are notably um, obtuse, <laughs> I think intentionally, you know, but the um, the growth and the major contributors to earnings definitely seem to be from the technology and the web services space. Hey, without getting too far off track, and, and then I want to go right back on track, um, Ian, uh, one of the guys who works for me that you know really well, uh, was saying to me that he'd read a number of studies about when a company builds their big headquarters, they're kind of at their peak. Um, you know, when mm -hmm. I look at uh, the spheres in downtown Seattle, I can't help but wonder. Um, and I'm curious about whether you think that's the case about uh, uh, Amazon as well. Yeah. Well, and then we can continue back down the timeline. Sorry. 
Yeah, there are a lot of um, signs like this that uh, one would suggest are symbols of frothiness or a peak. In, in an individual company like that, usually it is true. Um, there are many signs of uh, what we call the kiss of death <laughs> or drinking from the poison chalice or whatever you want to call it. But the, the, the very public vying for a headquarters, um, these sort of monuments to the immortality of a company uh, often are symbols of great hubris. Um, and that, of course, is uh, often itself a sign of a sort of peak. You know, um, business is legion. Uh, examples of this are legion, like uh, Sears rejecting Kmart, um, <laughs> dismissive of them, um, and, and Kmart coming to really undercut Sears' business. And then both of them losing out to Walmart. Uh, and now, you know, in the retail space, just this constant uh, turnover of who's on top. Um, it does take, these are long cycles, but still, um, you know, the, the, there's also, as you might know, a skyscraper index. Um, many people believe that no, uh, once we reach the, the newest, tallest building or a series of skyscrapers, that also is a symbolic oh, peak. Oh, I have heard of that, right? Uh, um, people were talking about, of course, when the Burj Khalifa was built. Yeah, so there's a skyscraper index, which I find interesting, too. And going all the way back to the Panic of 1907 and the um, building of the Woolworth Building, and those kinds of things you see in New York City, um, the, the Chrysler Building, and, of course, the... Uh, the um, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and the Empire State Building, which got the nickname the Empty State Building because right. it was started in 1928 and finished in 32. At the bottom of the Depression, immediately was bankrupt and never really achieved full um, occupancy until the 1960s. So um, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel was started in 1926 and completed in 1929, just before the crash. And there was not another new hotel built in New York City until 1964. So there, <laughs> sometimes these symbols of a peak, always in retrospect, we can't know going forward. You know, the future is a closed book, but the past is open for our interpretation. This is, uh, they're always interesting signs. To me, in the financial markets, some of the bigger signs are the, you know, AT&T Time Warner merger. Right. It's been said that Time Warner exists to uh, provide us with um, entertainment content, but there are those in the financial markets, and I have to give uh, Jim Grant this hat tip, <laughs> that say that Time Warner exists to call the top of the market. <laughs> the last merger with AOL signaled the peak, uh, the dot-com era. This tie-up with AT&T gives AT&T, uh, makes them the most indebted company in U.S. corporate history. I think in the league tables with around $248 billion of debt or so, they're slightly above Malaysia and below Thailand in terms of their total debt. So you see really um, these kinds of peak levels of debt uh, on corporate balance sheets are always a symbol of uh, sort of um, 
well, frothiness and possibly a peak in the markets. Take me back now. Let's go back back into your life and your return and your process and the market. So you were in January starting to explain some of your thesis before I interrupted you. Um, when was the trial? How did that affect, you know, how well you performed, um, you know, yeah. spring? Yeah, well, the, the, the trial was uh, fascinating. And it, in retrospect, seems pretty straightforward. There was a, a drive-by shooting. And these things have become more and more rare, but still, I guess, exist. Um, and this was between two rival gangs. This uh, happened in uh, downtown L.A., Los Angeles, near USC. Um, these gangs literally live side by side. Um, there were Crips and Bloods. And this one group, in a retaliatory effort, went by a liquor store where their rival gang was known to hang out. Um, and they shot. Um, what they wound up shooting was an unarmed man who was wearing a Dodgers uh, sweatshirt, which was blue. These were Bloods who were shooting at Crips, they thought. But they killed an innocent man who was just on his way to buy a, a beer after a hard day's work. So anyway, the, the trial proceeded, but there was a jailhouse confession but it was all in cryptic language. <laughs> and they had cell phone records and things that really seemed to incriminate two of the gang members in the blood side that uh, were protesting their innocence. Um, so it was very interesting because there were two, two of these fellows on trial. They were very young. I mean, literally late teens. Um, it was um, a, a Lord of the Flies moment, you know? Um, you could see that these um, young men, both of them had relatives who were gang members. One of them whose father was a gang member, but he hadn't seen his father since he was a child because his father was in prison. So it was an intergenerational endeavor. Um, and I just, it just seemed in some ways um, a natural course of events for these young men to join the gang, both for their own protection, um, because they lived in a very hostile and dodgy existence in the in this gang-infested area in which they grew up, um, and um, because as human beings, I think we all seek, we're gregarious animals, we seek the comfort of others and, uh, and their friendship. And... Um, I don't know, in a, in a kind of growing up in a hostile environment, which is like a war zone, I can imagine in Chicago and in parts of Los Angeles like that, that it just seems natural that you would align yourself with those who are your friends and your friends are joining gangs and you're with them. In any event, um, the, the protest of innocence was, to me, very shallow. One of the guys said he had left his his cell phone with another gang member and that possibly that's the gang member who went on a drive with his phone and did the shooting and all this stuff. But you know, I always think of Oakham's razor and that of course instructs us that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I would give my cell phone to another person 
while they go on a long drive to pick up beer or whatever he claimed they were doing and they come back after a shooting or, you know, I just don't, uh, especially today, many people are addicted to their phones. <laughs> I try to leave my phone alone right. as much as I can reasonably, but I wouldn't give it to someone else who might be, uh, concocting some criminal scheme. That's for sure. So anyway, so I'm um, still kind of curious what you mean. You were there in this kind of odd spot, you know, uh-huh. I'm trying to understand the amalgamation of, you know, whether those things affected how you were looking at the market. Certainly they must have affected how you went home because you were, you know, grateful to be in a much more peaceful environment <laughs> or not to have to hear about things like that. Um, you know, and then you're still searching for value at night. And I'm, I'm just trying to understand, um, you know, the how you're able to separate those things you know, what you were learning, you know, what, uh, I think you obviously know the basics, do good, bad is bad, right? Just pretty simply you're wired that way. But, I, you know, in, in all of our conversations, there's always deeper lessons here. And maybe I'm trying to pull too much out of you for the first conversation. But I am trying to well, get... the only way you'll know. I, I, I don't know, Neil, if there is a real answer to that. I came away with um, a a sense of sadness, but also joy, you know, that, um, and, and gratitude. Again, I'm very much insulated from that kind of day-to-day existence. I think those uh, young men had a form of PTSD, like uh, living in a war zone, kind of, you know. Um, I, 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 I feel very lucky that I I don't have to um, deal with that or, um, you know, I really believed that the gang violence of the 1990s here in Los Angeles had abated and it has significantly. But, you know, the testimony of many gang experts and just uh, one of them was really revealing. He said uh, he was a, a gang expert, whatever that might mean. Um, and the prosecutors relied on him quite heavily, but he had written several books and he's a professor at the university, uh, Cal state university, Long Beach, I believe, but he had this intricately drawn out map of different gangs in their territories and where they are and where the hotspots are, et cetera. And, um, on cross-examination, he was asked how he developed this map. And he's like, oh, well, I, I talked to children and they tell me. They're the most reliable. And by children, he really does mean children. He means six-year-olds who have to walk to school. And he conducts these, uh, you know, just kind of informal surveys and walks with them or goes to visit them in schools. And they can tell him, oh, this is 35th Street. This is where the, you know, the fruit berry crips uh, end. And this this is the kind of neutral zone. And then across the street there is where the blood's are and you know we stay on this side of the street because they know i live over here in the 20s and it's just fascinating that even as a five or six year old child that that's something you have to navigate it was really uh, eye-opening um yeah i can't imagine it and i think again you know warren buffett often jokes about how he won the genetic lottery being born in the united states um, 
who could have easily have been born in India or China. That's probably for a 43% chance just based on the numbers, right? So, um, and then to be born here in the U.S., we're what, 0.04% of the global total or something like that in terms of bodies, souls, and uh, what a unique thing. And even beyond that, to have been lucky enough to have the parents I did in the upbringing. It's just uh, really a remarkable thing to be grateful for. So, um, so take me through the highlights yeah, of the rest of the year then, right? And the, how, how that affected you in the market. Yeah. Well, I just, uh, I feel like this is the hardest really conversation I've had with you to, to drag information out of you, Chris. <laughs> Well, it didn't didn't necessarily change my investment process. It kind of redoubled my thinking. That so this uh, is the kind of stuff I want to hear about. It redoubled your thinking, yeah. right? Like you still killed it. Obviously, your what, what's your lifetime return percentage? Is what? Um, well, lifetime it depends. I mean, we've been through a few different cycles. I mean, we Sorry, talked about this a bit, a bit years, last week. You've been on your own where you were doing things. Is it sixteen or seventeen years now? Yeah, so we've been an independent RIA since '09. Okay. Um, returns over that period have uh, been around 16.6%. But if I go back to like 1999 when I started with the two crashes, <laughs> that number is uh, closer to 11%, 10.998 or so than my last count. And that's uh, without dividends reinvested. So, um, yeah, the the um, coming out of the bottom of the last cycle had, I guess, some advantages. But we've also, um, Neil, I think uh, when I look back at the last three years, uh, as much as I'm pleased with what we've been able to do, I still um, feel like, at least in this window of time, you know, we've lagged the indexes, the S&P and the NASDAQ. Um, and again, that's a, well, it is what it is, but there's this um, feature in the market. Yes, but you're which not I as volatile as also... those either. So yes, you might be lagging them, but <laughs> you also haven't lost as much in the other years that they have. Well, that's very true. It's very so true. I don't think and we're comparing I, I apples to apples, even though everybody probably compares you to that market. Yeah, I mean, we can look at it from a risk-adjusted return standpoint, and um, we can feel better. But I think there are real reasons why that um, has happened and why it's unlikely to continue. But who knows? I mean, the the um, passive investing has taken on a life of its own. And because of the construction of the indexes themselves being capitalization weighted, for example, you tend to get this um, continuation of the trend like a breeder reactor. You know, for a while, Apple and then Amazon were the most highly valued publicly traded stocks in the world. And that meant that every dollar that was invested in the S&P went disproportionately to those two names. And if we spread that over the the rest of the tech group, the famous fangs, Facebook, 
Amazon, Alphabet, <laughs> Netflix, Google, or, you know, um, that means that at one point, I read over 65 cents of every dollar was going into the top 10 names um, in the S&P index. So the, the rest, uh, the, the bottom 490 companies <laughs> had to share the crumbs, the 35 cents of each dollar invested that was left over spread pretty thinly over them. Um, so that kind of structure and habit among investors today tends to drive these uh, anomalous results where the most valued companies get even bigger um, and the smaller companies, and especially those that are not on an, not uh, part of the index, um, are just sort of left to atrophy. Go, go back a moment. Uh, you said something that I wish you would have focused on a little bit. Uh, all of these events this year made you double down on your philosophies even more. Can you, can you explain that? Well, I, I just think there are times when... Um, Pause for a moment. Just pause for a moment. You're being very Chris Idol right now, meaning you're yeah. having a hard time going outside and seeing yourself. <laughs> you're just in you being very present, looking at it from the outside. Um, one of the reasons I want to do this podcast, one of the reasons I you know, came up to you and wanted to be your friend the moment I met you and be close to you for the rest of my life was just how differently you seem to live life. Um, and uh, I knew that you were more mindful and thoughtful about how you thought about the world, how you amalgamated all of the thing inputs you were finding, and just, you know, you were very caring and empathetic. And yet you could be, in, you know, an investor in, in a kind of tricky field in the public markets at the exact same time, you know, who's the, the grandson of a one-time slave. Right, um, your, your grandfather was born into slavery. Is that correct, or your great grandfather? Your great grandfather. Yeah, my my the grandfather yeah. of my grandfather. Right, my second great grandfather was a slave. So that's right. You know, all of these things, which which I didn't obviously know about you, and um, for a number of years, um, all of these things, you know, really just make make me and made me pause and say, wow. Um, what I'm trying to get at, what are the, what are the things that the special sauce in some of our conversations beyond the deep laughter is when you make a statement like, so I double down based on everything that happened on my philosophies, right? That made, they, you know, they were more ingrained and, you know, that's where I, so it wasn't like you had to relearn something. All of those things made you even more interested. Try and take, you know, me, the outsider who doesn't live in your head and in your heart every day. Um, well, maybe I do in some way, but who doesn't get to be there every moment? Um, <laughs> and help me understand, yeah. you know, the doubling down philosophy and peace that I think will obviously probably make you more successful for my eyes and, you know, in, in the eyes of the, the market and, you know, a happier Pilar and Santiago, your wife and son. Um, yeah, well, I think um, when you see these great discrepancies in um, valuation, they How do you talk about valuation when I'm asking about, you know, your parents and all the other stuff you went through last year? 
I hear you, but when you start with that, I'm like, uh, like I want to throw something at you. Start again. Like try again. <laughs> I wish I was face to face with you with a bunch of Nerf balls because I'd be launching them. You would hit me. Well, maybe I'm not understanding the question because you, doubled, said, you, you said you doubled down on your philosophy investing. And just because you were in a trial didn't mean anything changed. Your philosophy was your philosophy, right? Um, yeah. And I asked you how the other things that, you know, affected your, your being an investor. And the impression I was led to was, you know, I, you know, I knew I should double down on what I knew. So what I'm trying to ask is, can you help? I don't know if that just a, a colloquialism of you saying, Hey, this is the way it worked. Or, um, it seems to me that you became even more grounded in all your beliefs that led you to probably be a better investor. I think as I'm watching you, I'm watching somebody getting better and better and better at their craft. That's my impression when I talked to you over the last number of years. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm trying to understand the, the inflection points um, that have made you better and better. And it's not just a down market that makes you better and better, right? It's your family and, and seeing something you thought come true again and again and again. So what I'm saying is take me back. Remember, I'm on the outside and help me understand. And don't start with valuation. <laughs> why why you think you've got a lot of philosophies there you go well, I mean, you can say this yeah. articulately we can call it a podcast this will be worth everything yeah i um well i'll back up even a step further neil the um trend of passive investing quantitative easing the sort of derangement of modern monetary policy I know this isn't how you want me to start. Yeah, I've got a nerf ball made, in my hand ready. <laughs> you getting ready to hit me? But it's made uh, it's made the last three years in some ways of investing, maybe the last five years, some of the most difficult um, of my life because the the expected results um, haven't always been what we anticipated, and um, it. it and so it made me wonder, had I lost my touch or had something changed or was there, a, um, again, did I need to make any adjustments to uh, philosophically what I really believed? And I think um, what happened in the beginning of last year kind of gave me uh, more faith to stay the course and, and to continue um, doing what I do. It was um, a reaffirmation of the values that I have from my family, from my learning, from everything. And that um, yeah, that that I don't know how else to say it, Neil, like I sort of had uh, no, I think we're just common, yeah. A sense of um, that this is my place, and that you know, um, Jeremy Grantham always says the most reliable thing is a reversion to the mean. But just this sense of the long view that ultimately um, these anomalies are anomalies that the that the the world itself, um, you know, gravity hasn't been. <laughs> made illegal that nothing has really changed that uh, permanently that would disguise or change 
what are fundamental uh, realities, the iron laws of economics, the, the laws of physics haven't been uh, abrogated. It's, I mean, I don't know. Um, and, I, and I think, um, I don't know where that sense of peace came from because it was, uh, maybe it was the passing of my parents that just gave me the sense that this is, you know, it's just the way, this is the way of life. I, um, I don't know. And maybe in the years leading up to that, you know, my, my mother and father had been ill. There was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of hospitalizations and visits and a lot of emergencies, some real, some imagined. So it was a, it was kind of hectic. And with their passing, I don't know, there was a, a definite sense of loss and some sadness, but, um, never despondency or depression and a real sense of joy and gratitude, especially as I went through that trial for what they had given me. So, um, I don't know. It that's just helpful, me, actually. No, no, that's helpful. Yeah. So it just gave me a, a great sense of, um, that I'm right where I needed to be. And this was all, this is all how it's supposed to be. And, you know, nothing of value ever really comes easily. Um, this challenge in uh, what I think of as a very challenging period in investing um, for us, I guess in some ways wasn't. We, we're often as investors compared to benchmarks, which I don't know <laughs> if uh, that's a, a fair thing or not. It is what it is, and we've got to be compared to something. But, you know, when we don't compare two mutual funds against each other, one that gets a massive inflows of investor capital to one that gets less. Um, the, the indexes themselves have become less and less like indexes and more themselves investment vehicles. So they're the targets of tremendous flows. Um, does that obviate or mean that they're no longer a fair index or measure? of the market's activity? I don't know. Maybe they're more so. But uh, in any event, those comparisons um, were not so flattering to us. And that led to lots of questions about our performance, our strategy, our discipline, etc. And those are warranted for sure. Well, healthy. For but, sure. Um, Asking questions yeah. of yourself and having people ask questions of your, of your yeah. I'd be yeah. worried if it wasn't happening somewhere. Yeah, but but you know, I I couldn't in good conscience invest uh, money in something like, for example, Netflix, which has a higher stock market value than Disney or did for a while. I haven't checked its market cap lately. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. It not even exists uh, with the wrong kind of blip, right? As great as I, <clears throat> as much as I love Netflix. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, we're looking at a. You know, a company that is burning through $5 billion a, a year. Right. And With not much reserve. Not being built like an old company anymore. You know, trying to, yeah, trying to no, plan for no. a downside. They, they have no ability to, they don't have a great ability to, you know, weather a, a, 
a small storm even. Yeah, I, 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 um, there's a lot attributed to, you know, their future growth. But I still, when you compare it to a powerhouse like Disney, with 10 billion in free cash flow, um, and, you know, just the, the, the ability to make content. I mean, every movie they make, especially every superhero movie, is a blockbuster. They wind up cannibalizing their own sales at the box office. It's just a really remarkable enterprise. And to ascribe a value to Netflix that's higher than Disney's, well, Crazy. yeah. <laughs> it's an example of how extreme we thought valuations had become. And that there was a reversion to uh, more undervalued, better positioned companies um, in terms of investor flows. And that uh, started to happen. Well, look, so so, so to end the podcast, and then I, I'll have a couple separate questions. We'll let Chad make an extra little clip. <laughs> um, can you kind of sum up uh, 2018? Like, um, not necessarily your biggest lessons. And if you talk about the market first, I swear to God, I'm going to throw a chair at you, even though we're states apart. Um, can you sum up 2018? Like in some way, like uh, in, a, in a few sentences, there we go. I've got to put parameters on you in a few sentences. Sum it up in a few sentences. Yeah. For you, just for you. What, what, what do you want? What do you want? Uh, the, you know, the folks I think will be listening to this podcast are mostly, mostly our friends this, you know, at this moment yeah. being about 20 in and, and some of your clients, what, what, what should they know about 2018? Well, 2018 is a, a beautiful year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It really was. I mean, there were of course lots of problems. This is the, the the cycle of birth and death and joy and suffering but um what was really interesting at least in the markets um was you know the orthodox top in this in the stock market which is where the majority of um stocks companies either in the index or broadly in the new york stock exchange composite reached their all-time highs and that happened in february uh, of last year. And that, um, to me, is like a topping pattern um, that we've seen. The NASDAQ and the S&P um, and the Dow all reached new nominal highs in uh, September and October. But the orthodox top, again, the majority of companies that make up those indices had still rolled over. So they were driven higher by a few last gasp runs to the finish, both Apple getting a trillion dollar market cap, then rolling over and Amazon doing the same. Those lifted the indexes to new nominal highs, but internally there's disarray. Um, and again, this kind of forming of a topping pattern. If you look at the S&P index as an example, it's tried now four times to break through that 2800 uh, mark and it just can't seem to climb through it. So I think it's a really wonderful thing like you in three that there's a reallocation of investments happening, that um, there's a reappraisal going on, and that um, money will find uh, investors, money will find a home 
outside of just this narrow and increasingly narrow um, uh, index uh, trend that we've seen. So I think that was a, a very good thing that's happened. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that that's the uh, end of this one.